Hello, you're listening to a podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions, where we study the past to understand our feelings in the present. I'm Thomas Dixon, and this is The Sound of Anger. In this episode, you can hear an extended conversation with the cultural historian Dr Fern Riddell. Fern's books include a biography of the radical suffragette Kitty Marion, called Death in Ten Minutes. I met with Fern backstage at the Free Thinking Festival at Sage Gateshead in March 2019. We spoke about anger, gender, personal experience, the history of emotions, and, eventually, Kitty Marion. So, Fern. Yes. I'm delighted we are finally having this conversation. We invited you, I think, about two years ago, roughly, to do this the first time, because we're making a series of podcasts about anger. Now, since I first asked you to do this, I've read your book, so I'm now <laughs> even better place to talk to you about it. Now, generally speaking, I'm sceptical of the value of, of political anger, but I'm trying to broaden my mind and open my mind and learn from others about why I should maybe be a bit more anger positive and less anger negative. And obviously, you and Kitty Marion both have things to say about that. <laughs> I uh, think we do. Yeah. So if you don't mind, if I might start by asking you about your emotions. So if you don't mind my asking, do you get angry? Of course I get angry. I think we have a political environment and a social environment at the moment that cannot stop anger. It's as if every time we log on or we talk to our friends, our anger becomes multiplied. And in many ways that can be really healthy. That allows us to find a way to create change if that's what we want in our system but I think at the moment we've we've almost become so full of it we have no way of doing anything proactive with it because it's just the one emotion we have coupled with frustration so I yeah I'm very angry at the moment to the point where I I don't know what to do with it how does it feel describe to us what it feels like when you're feeling this real anger I think anger for me is, it it goes hand in hand with heightened anxiety. So when I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I don't think there's going to be change, that makes you anxious because you want the system to change, you want the situation you're in to change, but that you feel you can't or it won't change. At the moment, you know, I can't do anything about Brexit. I'm not an MP. I'm not sitting in Parliament. I'm not Prime Minister. I'm not in charge of those decisions. Someone else is choosing for me. And that makes me very angry and scared and frustrated. But at the same time, if you're talking about anger in everyday life, I think the things that make me angry are queuing. (laughs) And, you know, we have, we kind of have very kind of, we have our domestic anger, which is the anger that we find in the world around us. And then we have whatever the opposite of that could be is the anger that happens outside of our domestic life. And, you know, I think about growing up and how angry and what used to make me angry when I was younger and how I would feel about that. I was always the, the person in the group where if we went out for a night out, was in the middle of any row, as in trying to stop it. Canterbury's a squaddy town, or at least it was when I was growing up. And we had the black and tans, who are hardcore. And every time you would go out on a night out, there would be a fight between the squaddy boys and the local boys. And the only way to calm those down as a girl was to get in the middle of it. Because the black and tans 
or at least the ones we had, they wouldn't hit a woman. That was, if, if any of them did, they were in serious trouble. But it was kind of an environment that was very aggressive and kind of confrontational, but you learn to be a negotiator and find compromise within it. So I think, you know, our, our anger is incredibly political at the moment, but we all experience anger from the day we're born and how we negotiate that and find ways to deal with it reflects in our political world. I'm really fascinated by that. How do you negotiate between two groups of drunk lads <laughs> who want to have a fight? Um, did negotiation <laughs> not apply to that? Well, no, yeah, you do. You, you try right, and you're a peacemaker. Or you, yeah, it's, you're not or worth you point it, out or... the, the, the bad consequences that will flow from their decision. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, often that's too many syllables and too many sentences, <laughs> I think, when I was younger. But it was, it was mostly um, one of the quickest ways to kind of stop a fight or anything else was to be able to say, oh, would you like to buy me a drink? Or why don't you buy me a drink instead? And, and that's not, I want to drink with that person. It's trying to deflect if two lads were squaring off against each other. So why would you do that rather than just walk away? Because if you didn't, two lads would square off against each other and then punches would be thrown and someone would end up getting arrested. And if you get arrested, then that's, on, that's your life changed. Okay, so you're wanting to... Avoid all those yeah, things happening. Yeah, but I think that's I think that's one of the things young women have to do, and often, or not as in we should, but we're taught to, is this idea that we are supposed to be the the pin that pricks the bubble of emotion, and diffuse things, negotiate, compromise. We're taught that from a very very young age, and our society reinforces it. What we struggle with is when women display anger and violence in a way we only think of as being a male thing, like with the suffragettes. Yeah. One of the things that I'm struggling with, if I need your help, is that I think we have all these conversations about anger, especially the last couple of years, and we all use the word, and I think a lot of us mean quite different things by it, and you've just talked about quite a few different scenarios. But it is this idea of, of how anger is discussed between the genders. And I think that's important. In You and I were talking about anger being an emotional thing, and you asked me if I was emotional. And my response is, as a woman, don't paint me as being emotional, she says, already heightening her voice and getting emotional about it. Because this idea that women are overly emotional is a really negative one. And often when I'm angry, I don't want to cry because I'm angry. I want to smash a plate that anger come if it's going to come out in a physical way is different and we don't you know we don't talk about that we often only feminize anger as a response that is sad what i would equate to sadness or despair and i think that removes an awful lot of agency from female anger so the thing that i'm trying to pin down is in those experiences of frustration, uh, anxiety and fear about politics, feeling of impotence, lack of power, lack of agency, but also drunk men squaring off against each other about to throw a punch. Is there something that holds... What is the thing that holds all those things together under that category of anger, if, if there is? Like what is the, what's the essence of those things that is shared amongst them, if there is anything? It's a sense of self, I think, when we feel our identity, our, who we are, is threatened, whether that's two drunk lads squaring off in a pub because one of them feels the other one's been insulting or has bumped their drink or something else. You know, there's, there's always far more in those tiny moments than, is, than it seems. It's about a sense of self and feeling that you're 
identity or who you are has been compromised or dismissed. You can find that tiny, almost primal motivation at the root of all of the anger in our politics today. There's a sense that your, yourself has been threatened or dismissed in some way. But what you also need, don't you, I think, for it to become anger, as we normally talk about it, is some aggression or some forceful action or forceful desire for action that may be violent. Because you could feel the threat to self and withdraw and become, and become dis- despairing yeah. and sad and dispre- depressed. So I, I mean, I'm just... Is that right? I mean, do you think that the, 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 for it to be angry, it, has, it needs to have that added ingredient of, I don't know quite the right word to use, but violent or forceful intention to act? Well, I, I, see, I see where you're going with that, but I would disagree because if you're looking at, say, someone who's been abused, they're terribly angry, but they may not be being violent in reaction to, to that sense of self being corrupted. So, so it can be anger and be just a feeling. That doesn't go any, that doesn't turn into violence, and it doesn't have any intention. To, but then, then what? Because you see what I'm saying. You can you, you can have, you feel your, yourself has been threatened and injured, uh, and violated, and be unhappy about that. But I don't know that I would call that anger unless there was some other ingredient. But but again, maybe this is a, you know I use the word differently than you yeah, do. Yeah, I th- I think I think we, I think perhaps our emotional experiences from which we will define what emotions are, perhaps are different. As a young woman, as a woman, as a young girl, we experience threat, we experience danger. And those experiences do from from men, from other people, from going out, from everything, your reaction to it is not less angry because you're not punching someone. It's that the anger becomes internalized or becomes expressed in different ways, maybe through activism, maybe through trauma, maybe through other problems from anything else. And I think I think kind of if you're defining anger as solely the reaction of physical experience external to the person who is experiencing an emotion, then you are leaving out Anger as an experience for everyone who does not violently express yeah. themselves. No, I wasn't. Yeah, you're quite right. I wasn't meaning to do that. And first of all, let me say, it, you're clearly absolutely right. The um, our use of these emotion words, our understanding of them, is completely bound up with their own experience. And there's a whole realm of experiences that all of us will not ever have. And in my case, for example, the experience of being a woman or being a vulnerable person of another kind. That I, you know, I'm a walking embodiment of privilege, and you know, there's a whole there's a whole lot of it. Sure, but there's a whole lot of experiences that I won't have access to. And so when I'm trying to decide what I mean by anger, then obviously it's always going to be partial, and it's always going to be limited because of my lack of experiences of other kinds. But the thing that I was trying to get at was, let's agree that there are forms of anger which have no outward consequences. I'm totally fine with that, the idea that someone is angry but they don't show it at all. Mm. Right? They don't punch anyone, they don't look like they're going to punch anyone, they don't throw a plate at the wall. What I'm trying to get at is what does their feeling, what structure or nature does that feeling have to have for it to qualify as anger rather than sadness or pain you know, or something. And what I was suggesting, trying to suggest was, it was the intention or the mental movement towards aggression, even if that was entirely internal, mm. towards getting your own back, aggression, violence, even if that was a, at a fantasy or imaginary level? I don't... 
Because otherwise, aware. isn't it something else? Isn't it pain or sadness? Yeah, it, yeah, I'm very aware that I set this up by sort of saying two lads squaring off against each other. And I think perhaps that's an external understanding of anger rather than I think than that's helpful personally. One. I mean, I think that... Sorry to cut across you. I think that scenario, and certainly historically, and certainly in the history of art, that scenario of drunk men squaring up to each other is absolutely canonical um, picture of something. Rage, wrath, ire, anger. Hieronymus Bosch has a thing called the Seven Deadly Sins. It's a kind of it's a tabletop mm. painting of the Seven Deadly Sins. And ira, wrath, is two drunk men outside a pub. 600 years ago that's what it is breaking furniture over each other's heads so that is something absolutely fundamental and that is an image that I immediately associate with anger but so the question is in those cases where we're saying there's somebody who is we believe is angry but they're not in that scenario how do we know that they're angry how do they know that they're angry how do they know that their painful feeling counts as anger rather than something else To, to kind of draw on what you're talking about about art and artistic expression for me one of the most amazing images of anger, of female anger, is incredible painting by Artemisia Gentileschi, which is called Judith and Holophanes. And this, for me, is a pure expression of female rage because Artemisia was raped and she paints her rapist into this portrait and she cuts his head off and she paints herself cutting his head off. And whilst it is a a biblical story, it's this incredible way of of expressing and owning your anger when you have nowhere else to go with it. And I I would defy anyone to say that that is less anger than two drunk lads squaring off in a pub. And I, I really think we, we need to understand anger is not just a violent thing, because people can be violent with their words. We can be violent with their words, people can be violent with abuse online. You, you know, our, our ways of doing violence to each other through anger has never been a purely physical thing. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about Kitty Marion. I read your book and really enjoyed it. And initially, in a way, I wanted not to be persuaded by it because I've got this whole thing where I'm basically very anti-anger and I'm wanting at every possible turn in politics and history to say anger's not important, anger's not valuable, anger's not healthy. So that's my whole thing. And I'm having to sort of open my mind and revise my opinions. And reading your book was one of the things that helped me revise my opinions and educate myself and so initially I was a bit annoyed but then I was quite (laughs) I was quite pleased because there's some great the reason I was pleased was because as a good historian what you gave me was actual evidence you know just textual evidence of a woman writing about herself and writing about her feelings and and as a historian of emotions that is that is uh the stuff that I need that is you know proper evidence uh, of a, a a voice a voice has been recovered from history a a, a, a woman's words and thoughts. And so that was great. So eventually I got over it and said, okay, that's actually really useful. <laughs> um, and and the, I, I've, I've given a few talks where I have quoted from your book and I've got, you know, slides because you know, it's just her words saying, I'm furious. I'm full of rage. I'm full of fury. Uh, and as you explained in the panel that we've just heard here at Sage Gateshead, that she was, she had lots of both personal and political reasons. Um, well, the personal is political is a, a slogan that applies to her very well. So my question is, uh, for her, and obviously you've spent years with her and sort of trying to get into her mind and into her feelings, how would you describe and explain to us uh, the relationship for her of the personal and the political, especially with reference to, to her emotions, to her rage, her fury, her experience as a woman? 
what was personal, what was political, or can you not distinguish between the two? Firstly, thank you, because that's incredibly kind, and I am emotional <laughs> in, in knowing that it has had that sort of an impact with you, so thank you very much for that. Um, I think, don't think you can separate Kitty's personal and political, and, and I think it's hard if you're a woman active in public life on whatever level, that that's, you can't do that at all. Um, and she shows very clearly, you know, she was an actress who was on the musicals and found that men, agents, managers, expected that she would exchange her body for work and that that was, that was it, that was the narrative, that was the story, that was how the industry worked. It didn't matter that she arrived thinking, I will go on the stage and people will pay me money and I will take that money home and we'll all have a great time. She found a very different situation and... That's what first radicalised her anger, was the experiences that happened to her in the industry, in her working life, where she expected things to be one way, and they weren't. And what actually she was expected to give was a part of herself, or have it taken from her. And when we see that moving into her political life, those feelings and those emotions carry her through to commit incredibly violent acts and I think one of the things that's so amazing about her as a source is she's by far the only one there's so many more (laughs) there's so many other voices there for you to for anyone to look at but that she is very clear about what has led her to commit those incredibly violent actions and it is her life experience and we tend to when we look at the vote first of all or at least before, I think moving past the centenary year, things will be different. But before the centenary year of 2018, when we looked at the suffragettes, we thought every woman out there, their only motivation was the vote. That was it. Kitty's motivation for fighting for the vote wasn't that she had been living her life and having a great time, and then she was just like, oh, I'd like the vote, that would be great. Her motivation for having the vote was, I'm in my industry, I'm trying to work, I'm being abused, I'm being assaulted, I'm being knocked out by men who think they have a right to my body, and this has to stop. And the only way to make that stop is to get politics involved, and politics doesn't think I'm worthy of representation, so I will make it realise I am worthy of representation. And, you know, the whole the whole justification for suffrage violence from Kitty to the Pankhursts was that men have fought for their rights with violence. The Chartists burn things down. We are here doing the same thing as men so that you understand women are not just your equal intellectually, they're not just your equal emotionally, they are your equal violently because violence seems to be the only thing you listen to. It's very powerful, and it comes across very powerfully in your book. To what extent was that narrative that you just articulated one that that was part of suffragette propaganda, if you like? I understand that as a narrative which makes a lot of sense, perhaps in private, as a motivation. But my understanding, and I am absolutely not an expert, is that the public voice of those women was much more calm and rational and it was important that it should be 
But I think this is the sanitization of our history. This is what's at play here and this is the problem. Because if you look at the suffragist movement of everyone who's campaigning for the vote, yes, it's incredibly passionate and strident debate, but it isn't violent. When you look at the suffragettes, who are the members of the WSPU with the Pankhurst-owned organisation, that is the only organisation that are threatening bombs by 1909 threatening threatening to bomb before really before there had been a huge amount of state violence those threats came they were already they were already sitting there in the back of people's minds of, of the members and they are incredibly vocal about it you know Christabel Pankhurst in the suffragette which is the main organ of the suffragette movement of, of trying to persuade people to vote uh, to give women the vote she would print every week a double page spread of every single attack that had happened, that the suffragettes had done. All the bombings, all the arsons, every kind of bomb that was found, every post box that was burned, every threat to an MP. So they weren't hiding their violence. And she used the incredible, the whole kind of suffragette leadership used a language of violence, which we're seeing, I think, again today, the language of revolution. The language that this is a civil war. There's an amazing quote from Bristol Pankhurst where she says, if men, you know, men use the weapons of bombs and it's called a noble act, why should we not do the same? And so I understand why we have sanitized our history of the suffragettes and why we have presented it as non-violent. But actually, when you go back to the source material, you go back to the women who were doing these acts, you'll see that they were proud, they were defiant, they were very public about it. Because you've got to remember, the whole reason for the bombing and the arson and everything else was to get yourself into a criminal prosecution box so your arguments for why would be recorded and printed in the press. Yes, absolutely. And... There's absolutely no doubt, and your work has helped to make sure people know this, that suffragettes were proudly using violence and telling the world they were using violence. What I still am not sure about, but I'm sure I just need to read some more and do some more research, is did they accompany that with a rhetoric of rage and fury explicitly in their publications? Let's say you've got the two pages of a double spread of here are the post boxes that we've burnt and, and bombed and so on. And then was, you turn the page, an editorial saying, why rage and fury are great. Because my impression is that that wasn't the case. That, and, and that example you give there, which is very um, evocative of the woman who wants to be prosecuted for a crime so that she can put her case in the witness box, she, my impression is, would give that, make that case rationally and persuasively in quite a logical uh, way. And indeed, I mean, some of what I'm basing this on is having read memoirs of, 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 of the Pankhursts. They make a, a point of, we are the rational ones. We have an unanswerable rational case. And you men are the prejudiced, violent, passionate ones. So that's why I'm asking you, and if, there, if this exists, then great, then point me towards it. The kind of editorials where they say, we proclaim female fury as a positive thing. Because that's the thing that I have not seen. Firstly, Tom, I think checking my footnotes would be really helpful. 
um, because in one of the things in sorry, one of the things in there is uh, links to all of the suffragette. And for your listeners, I think one of the things that was might be very useful for them: the suffragette newspaper has now been completely digitised by the British Newspaper Archive. It is downloadable, it is searchable. You can look at it, and I suggest anyone who is interested in the language the suffragettes use that is should be their first point of call. Also, that they can see all of these amazing double page spreads and see the evidence for themselves. But one of the things that I I tried to go into in my book, and perhaps didn't do so deeply enough, is the language that Christabel used to radicalise her followers. So you've got to think, you know, the suffragette has these beautiful images of kind of Joan of Arc on the cover, and this double page spreads of the violence that the suffragettes have been committing on the inside Before that and after it come images of suffragettes who've been force-fed and on their deathbeds. So, and and afterwards as well, and uh, headlines like bombs, revolution, uh, a very violent language, a language of civil warfare. This is not going to stop until you give us the vote. And I think when you're looking at that as a whole you can understand how the women who were conducting these campaigns were being radicalised because they're getting these incredible images of iconography of, of, of beautiful and strong women like Joan of Arc in the armour as, as an angel fighting for what is right, then awful images of violence, stories of violence being done to women, and then the violence women are enacting on the state with very powerful, very strident, very clear rhetoric. Oh, you know, Mrs Panko's going, I incite this meeting to rebellion. That's not, I incite this meeting to rebellion, go and knit a nice square that says, I don't like this. That's, I incite this meeting to rebellion, we're in the middle of a bombing campaign, girls, you go off and you do what I tell you, what I've been secretly telling you. What happens afterwards, and why I think we have this huge national kind of brain drain on the suffragettes and what was actually happening, is this period of sanitization in the 1930s where they decide that talking about the violence is bad and it becomes swept under the carpet it becomes hidden in the archives and anyone who was telling that story is seen as unimportant and no longer no longer to be talked about to be discussed you know the one thing and i think you probably agree with me historians can only go on what the archive says and if it's not in an archive it's not recorded and we don't have it there and those views and those stories are lost so what's so exciting about being a historian at the moment and now and i hope for ever really is that we are asking new questions of our archives and we are asking new questions of our material and i think that will push us to change our understanding of the past to change our understanding of our archives and perhaps to change our understanding of of anger as it's been in our society how it's helped shape our society and and that's i think that's what matters to me more i want to be like you i want to think that anger and rage is unimportant but i have you know if you go back over your life i have spent my life so angry angry at being touched up in a bar, angry and not being able to punch someone when they touch me when I don't want them to and I don't know them and they're a stranger, at not being able to defend myself from a physical... Uh, attack is too strong a word, but from, from someone, 
coming into your space when you don't want them to. I think there was there was almost a clean, beautiful brutality to the fact two lads can square off against each other. Whereas I can't do that. I was always taught as a young woman, I couldn't. So you become the negotiator instead. I almost wish women could could be seen as violent as men because, my God, I think many women in my teens especially would have been very different if men did not think what I, what we were going to say was, please leave me alone, but we're going to square off at them just as they would anyone else, but who knows. Well, you've inspired me, Fern, <laughs> to think differently about anger and to read some more of The Suffragette, mm. which I will do. It's good source. In search of, I'll be doing Control-F Rage, Control-F <laughs> Fury, Control-F Anger, and I will get back to you yeah, I would like to about, see about what I find. Okay. Um, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. It was presented by me, Thomas Dixon, as part of the Living with Feeling project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust. It was produced by Natalie Steed. To hear the rest of the Sound of Anger series, and to listen to our other podcasts, search for Queen Mary History of Emotions on SoundCloud or iTunes, and discover more about our work at emotionslab.org.